BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hey, it's the Tom Hartman podcast brought to you by Cameron Hughes Wine. There's a little secret that most people don't know about the highest quality wineries in the United States and how they work. They'll say, you know, as they start their year, okay, we're going to bottle, say, 5,000 bottles of wine this year. And so they overproduce for that, produce enough for maybe 6,000 bottles of wine. But, you know, they've, they've sold 5,000, they're ready to get 5,000 out. And so that's basically all they do under their own label. And then when they're done, they've got casks of wine left over that haven't been bottled. Cameron Hughes contracts with some of the very best vineyards in America to take that essentially surplus wine. I mean, you know, it's the exact same wine you would buy in a bottle for 50, 60, 100. Uh, one of the Cameron Hughes wines I had last week, the retail price, if you knew who the brand was, was over $150 a bottle. Cameron Hughes buys that in bulk, bottles it, puts just a simple number. Here it is, lot 546 or lot 622. Simple number on it, and you get some of the most spectacular wines at huge discounts off what you would normally pay. Cameron Hughes has been doing this since 2001, seeking out high-end wine from around the world and selling it online direct to his customers. This is not just American wines. Earning Cameron Hughes Wine the number one wine brand online. It's just extraordinary stuff. Uh, I recently sampled Lot 609. This is a Cabernet Sauvignon. It was insane. It was so good. It was bold. It was rich. It had the, the black fruit and red licorice and crushed red rock. All these, these extraordinary tastes, juicy and ripe on the palate. You got to check this out. Go to chwine.com slash Tom, T-H-O-M. C-H as in Cameron Hughes. That's his name. He, the guy who started the company and runs it. I've talked with him. He's a great guy and he's doing amazing stuff. chwine.com slash T-H-O-M. Or text the word wine, W-I-N-E. Text the word wine to 511-511 and you'll get free shipping with your minimum three bottle order. So text wine to 511-511. Cameron Hughes wine. Exceptional value. Extraordinary wine. Now enjoy the podcast. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Greetings, my friends, patriots, lovers of democracy, truth and justice, believers in peace, freedom, and the American way. It's uh, Friday on the week of 4th of July, and uh, the uh, Republican delegation that went over to Moscow, I guess, is just uh, on their way back. They, they left the country for the 4th. I don't get that, but, you know, I guess Republicans do. Um, and, um, you know, although, you know, it's, it's, it's international travel is always fun, you know. But uh, there's, there's a lot in the news I want to get to. Uh, Horace Cooper's going to drop by and debate uh, the EPA with us in an hour. But other than that, it's Anything Goes Friday, taking your calls on whatever you'd like to talk about, our number 202-808-9925. And uh, starting out uh, in this list of, of, you know, kind of the news of the bizarre or the bizarre news of the day or whatever the proper phrase is, uh, the company that is making the flags for Trump's 2020 campaign, uh, the guy who owns the factory, was interviewed on NPR's show, The Indicator, Turns out he doesn't speak English, so he had to be interviewed through a translator because he only speaks Chinese because he owns a factory in China. Yep, uh, Trump's American flags for his 2020 campaign, like all of the Trump products, basically, or the vast majority of them, and Ivanka's products as well, made in China. Li Zhang owns the factory. 
He said, we also make flags for Trump for 2020. Seems like he has another campaign going on in 2020. Isn't that right? <laughs> Apparently they're getting a lot of orders. This is amazing. We have talked before about how our Constitution was put together in a way that represented a lot of compromise. And uh, one of the major, in fact, the major compromise that you find threaded throughout the Constitution was um, an effort to, to create a Constitution, a structural document for our country that both accommodated the needs and desires of the Northerners who were opposed to slavery and in fact, at, at the time of the ratification of the Constitution, there were actually people of color in the North, and in some states even women, who were voting. And uh, although most of that got rolled back in the, in the first 50 years after the Constitution was ratified, but at the time of the ratification of the Constitution, that was the case. Uh, on the one hand, and then on the other hand, of course, the Southern states, who were represented exclusively by white men, and uh, the vast majority of them being slaveholders. And uh, the southern states had relatively small white populations, although they had large black populations. Um, I believe in Georgia, uh, blacks outnumbered whites, in fact, and it might have been the case in South Carolina. And, and so they, had, you know, they were trying to thread this needle, and, and thus we got the Electoral College, and we got small states get the same two senators that large states do. And it has produced, particularly in the current era, where Republicans have exploited this construction of our Constitution to, you know, about as far as you can, uh, we now have every branch of our government being, you know, the, the Supreme Court, the, you know, branch number three in the Constitution, Congress, branch number two in the Constitution, the White House, uh, branch, excuse me, Congress number one, uh, the White House branch number two in the Constitution, uh, all being represented by Republicans, and the majority of state legislators, and the majority of state governors. Here's where it gets interesting. You know, obviously, we all know Hillary Clinton won the last election by three million votes. She lost in the Electoral College. But six of the last seven presidents, excuse me, six of the last seven presidential elections, the majority of the voters voted for Democrats. In only one of the last seven presidential elections did the majority of the voters actually vote for the Republican candidate. Every other case, the, the, the majority came out of the Electoral College, not the popular vote. So, in other words, for, for six out of the last seven presidential elections, Americans, the majority of Americans have voted for Democrats and Democratic policies, even though we got, you know, George W. Bush and, uh, and uh, uh, well, I'm not sure about Reagan. I'd have to go back and look at the list, but, and his daddy, and, and uh, now we've got, of course, Donald Trump. But it gets even more interesting. If you look at the Senate, and you just look at how many people, you've got 100 senators, right? 51 Republicans, 49 Democrats, or a couple of independents who caucus with the Democrats. If you look at the, at, the, uh, at the Senate, 23 million more people voted for Democrats for the Senate than voted for Republicans in the last election in 2016. Now, if you translated that into just, you know, okay, a national vote for the Senate, it would mean that you would have 59 Democratic senators right now and 41 Republican senators. Nearly the, two, you know, the supermajority needed to just absolutely do anything. 23 million more Americans voted for Democrats than Republicans. This is, and, and you know, Democrat, this, uh, Democratic policies and increasingly progressive Democratic policies are not the left, they're not the fringe, they are the mainstream, they are right straight down the middle. And, uh, and I'm talking about things like Medicare for all and free college tuition and, uh, you know, higher minimum wage and the right to unionize. Healthcare, education, and jobs. These are the three principal issues that the Democrats need to campaign on and they need to boil it down to a bumper sticker, which I think I just did, and go for it. Meanwhile, here in the state of Oregon, we have only one black member in the, in the entire Oregon House of Representatives. Her name is Janelle Bynum. And uh, Tuesday, day before yesterday, the day before the 4th of July, at 5 o'clock, and the sun, is, the sun doesn't go down here until around 10 p.m. because we're so far north, and it's, you know, summer. So around 5, five in the afternoon, nice bright sunny day, she's out knocking on doors in, the, in a neighborhood 
that she represents in the Oregon House of Representatives. And sure enough, somebody in the neighborhood dials 911 and says, quote, there is somebody casing the neighborhood for houses that are unoccupied as if they would come back later and rob them. When are white people going to get a clue? It's, you know, it's, 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 it's kind of breathtaking. And then, uh, oh, we'll get, we'll get, the, we've got this new, uh, this new, um, this network, well, we'll get to that in a minute. Let me just pick up your phone calls here. It's, I mean, th- this is the stuff that's at the top of my mind. I, uh, I, I watched a couple of networks this morning, uh, CNN and MSNBC for a while, and all I saw was stories about Donald Trump or Trump's administration. Um, when you give that much press to somebody, you are virtually guaranteeing, as happened during the primaries, that they acquire more political power. And Trump really knows how to use that. So anyhow, pick up your phone calls here. Phyllis in Philadelphia. Hey, Phyllis, what's on your mind today? Good morning. Good morning, Tom. Um, my concern is abortion. Mm-hmm. They talk about banning abortion. Abortion will never, we never get rid of abortion. What we're talking about is getting rid of legal and safe abortion. Right, we're talking about criminalizing abortion. Yes, and I think that when we talk about it, we need to use these words because it will impress upon people, yes, we're talking about safe and legal abortion. Well, the phrase that Bill Clinton used back in 92 in his election campaign was... Um, Legal, safe, and rare, as I recall. Yes. And yes. and that and rare part um, was really interesting because when he was when he was challenged on that, he made the point that if you legalize abortion, and you expand you know birth control, the availability of birth control and sex education in the schools, you actually reduce the number of abortions. And, and the statistics pointed that out uh, right. at the end of his administration. This all came true. Yes. Yeah. Uh, the abortion rate, uh, the number of abortions actually went down as a result of the Clinton administration with more widespread sex education and more widespread access to contraceptions. You're ab- exactly. you're, or contra- contraception. And now you've got an administration. And, you know, if they roll back Roe v. Wade, that's that's not where they're going to stop. They're going to say that Plan B is an abortifacient, that the IUD is an abortifacient, that hormone-based birth controls are abortifacients, all of which, by the way, are not actually scientifically accurate. They all prevent pregnancy, implantation, but they consider you know, fertilization to be the moment before it's even implanted in the womb, which is crazy. Phyllis, thank you for the call. This is the Tom Hartman Program. So if Trump gets his, his pick on the Supreme Court, uh, you know, and it's an anti-abortion uh, person, you know, say goodbye to your birth control. We'll be back. And welcome back. Tammy in Spirit Lake, Iowa, watching us on Free Speech TV. Hey, Tammy, what's up? Hey, Tom. Well, I thought I would bring to your attention a little oil spill that we had here in Iowa, just in case you hadn't heard about it. I hadn't. Okay, well. Go for it. At- at the end of June, a train derailed near Dune, Iowa, mm-hmm. and 33 tankers, each carrying 250,000 gallons of tar sands, went off the track into the flooded Little Rock River. And it's a mess. Oh, and tar sands oil are, I mean, when the Kalamazoo River got contaminated, what, six years ago, I think it was? Yes. They're still trying to dig that stuff out because, you know, normal oil... Uh, some of it will settle to the bottom, but most of it floats and you can skim it off. But tar sands oil is so heavy, it sinks to the bottom and it keeps sinking. It goes like down into the, into the earth and through the sand and stuff. And, if you, and, if it, and, and very often, you know, possibly it could even reach the water table. But, well, but it's already sure, contaminated a river. You know? Well, I mean, if you could see the flooding, I'm not sure if you're aware of John Bolenbaugh. He's a whistleblower from the Kalamazoo tar sands. He apparently used to work for the industry and now has turned whistleblower. Oh, interesting. No, I don't know about him. Okay, well, you can check him out. Um, He has done some great footage documenting this oil spill. Uh And of course, you know, Steve King was here, but he's just telling everyone they're going to fix it and then it's fine. And unfortunately for me, my work takes me over to that area and it is so toxic. And there's animals in that area. There's cattle. There's I mean, it is... Do, not, I'm assuming downriver communities are taking their drinking water out of the river, too. I mean, that's typically are, what happens. All of these rivers flow into the Missouri. so you which, know, which supplies water to millions of people. Millions of people. But, you know, we're not hearing about it. So yeah. I just wanted to let you know about it if you want to do a little bit more investigating and see Thank if you. you can help us out here. Thank you. 
Thank you very much for that, I, I, uh, Tammy. I appreciate the call. Thanks, Tom. Thank you. Gary in Minneapolis. Hey, Gary, what's up? Yeah, I, uh, thanks for taking my call. Sure. And, um, you know, I look back at 9-11, and that has been like the catalyst that has led to all of the civil rights that we've lost over the last, since then. I would say to a large extent, yeah. I, actually, I would say it wasn't 9-11. It was the Bush administration's response to 9-11. Because okay, they could have chosen a very different response. If happened, there wouldn't have been the response. Well, yeah. I mean, you know, if, if, if uh, Bush and Cheney and, uh, and, and uh, Condoleezza Rice had done what Bill Clinton, Al Gore, and Sandy Berger told them to do when the transition happened, and Sandy Berger told me this right here on the show on the air, that he knew, you know, uh, firsthand this happened. All three of them said to the incoming Bush administration, to their respective, you know, new counterparts, Clinton to Bush and Gore to, to Cheney and himself, Sandy Berger to Condi Rice, your number one priority has to be Osama bin Laden because he's sending people to attack us in the United States. Right. And that was so, in that was and, in January and, of of 2001. And of right. course, uh, you know, so so what Bush did is he he appointed a task force on bin Laden, National Security Task Force, put Dick Cheney in in charge of it, and uh, Dick Cheney was so busy meeting with oil industry executives that they didn't meet until 2 weeks before 9/11. That was their first meeting. So, yeah, I I, I agree with you, Gary. It's it's uh, it's a horror show. Thanks a lot for the call. And thanks for watching Free Speech TV. We'll be right back. This is the Tom Hartman Program. So Scott Pruitt has left the room, or I think is uh, doing so at the end of this week. He has been replaced by his number two, Andrew Wheeler, a former lobbyist for the uh, nation's largest coal company, uh, Murray Energy. Uh, <laughs> don't expect much to change. In fact, things might even get worse. Uh, just a few of the things that uh, Scott Pruitt oversaw that uh, generally don't get reported because everybody's talking about his hand lotion and is using uh, sirens to get to a restaurant. Uh, they, they canceled the requirement that oil and gas companies report their methane emissions. Methane emissions not only are you know, increasing global warming, but methane emissions are always associated with other hydrocarbons. In other words, things like benzene that cause cancer that poison local communities. They canceled the requirement that these companies report on that. Uh, they uh, did away with a Clinton-era rule designed to limit toxic emissions from major industrial polluters. Uh, they directed agencies to stop using a calculation of, quote, the social cost of carbon. In other words, you know, how much, how much impact is, is happening to communities from this kind of pollution. They revoked a, a rule prohibiting the use of hydrofluorocarbons. These are powerful greenhouse gases and uh, deplete the ozone. They revoked an, an Obama-era executive order protecting ocean, coastal, and Great Lakes water uh, in favor of a policy focused on energy production. They scrapped a proposed rule that mines prove that they can pay to clean up future pollution. They did away with that. They withdrew a requirement that Gulf rig operators prove that they can cover the cost of removing their rigs. They revoked Obama-era flood standards for federal infrastructure projects like roads and bridges. That just seems like common sense. They revoked a rule, this was one of the very first things that Trump did when he got in, is they, they revoked a rule that prevented coal companies from dumping mining debris into local streams, thus poisoning communities downriver who draw, draw their water out of those rivers. And they delayed by two years an EPA rule regulating limits on the toxic discharge of mercury from power plants into public waterways. Is any of this stuff good, what I just described? I'm guessing Horace Cooper, our next guest, an attorney and a senior fellow with the National Center for Public Policy Research, nationalcenter.org, conservative think tank out of D.C., might say so. Horace, welcome back to the program. Hey, it's great to be on the program. Thank you. So uh, you heard my list. Uh, how can you defend the indefensible? A couple of things I would observe. Um, this idea that it was common sense and reasonable. Why didn't it happen during the Clinton administration? Uh, why for eight years? Uh, why didn't it happen during the Carter administration? Many of these um, things did. Some of these rules that he overturned go back to Reagan. 
No, none of the interpretations go back to Reagan. All of the interpretations go back just to the Obama administration, whether they issued guidance letters, whether they issued how you implement the regulation. Um, that is a huge difference. I believe the law against uh, coal companies dumping their waste into public waterways and poisoning communities downstream has been in place for years and years and years, if not this specific As I rule. Said, how you enforce that was a Obama administration interpretation. Oh, in other words, the Obama administration got more aggressive than the Bush administration about protecting American citizens. Again, what's wrong with that? But Horace, what's what, wrong with what, protecting the people? Isn't that the job of government is to provide for any, the general welfare? Anything the president does through executive action can be undone by another president through executive action. And I understand the mechanics of it. I'm asking you, what is good about any of this? What's good about it is we don't need the President of the United States acting outside of the context of the authority of the Congress of the United States. If Congress authorized every single one of these rules, or every single one of the laws that, that provided for this rulemaking, and you know that. That's not, that's not true at all. In fact, the way that most of the rules have been rescinded was the... Uh, uh, the statute that Congress created in the late 1990s that gives them the ability to repeal by a simple majority the rules uh, that they see are brought to their attention and aren't able to be uh, aren't sustainable in the eyes of the public and the eyes of the legislature. But I was just you know, but to... Horace, what we're doing here is 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 I'm saying, look at that guy. He just got shot, and you're saying. Oh, well, what kind of legal technicality is there that we can, you know, that we can discuss? No, I'm asking you, what is not, good about this stuff? Not, How can you defend this stuff? Not at all. The president needed to bring people into court and say the law on coal dumping into uh, coal minerals being dumped into fisheries and waterways has been violated. We're prosecuting you and letting a judge make a determination whether or not they were in violation. That's not what the Obama administration did. Instead, they issued new implementation rules, and that went beyond the authority that the uh, government should operate under, because for transparency purposes, we all ought to know what the laws and expectations are. Oh, come on. That's, that's a total BS argument. And you still have not answered my question, Horace. Why would you support we just an administration and make sure and a that president? We take all of the money that we would use in elections to provide health care for some needy people. If if the only oh, let's not change the subject here. So what you're saying, basically, if what I understand this correctly, Horace, what you're saying is that if if the coal companies are being allowed to poison the public, that's just fine because uh, no, in not. your belief, your interpretation of the Constitution and the law. Uh, you think that the, the way that Obama applied that law was beyond the bounds. If it was beyond the bounds, why did the Supreme Court strike it down? No, it's the application, not necessarily the law itself. Couldn't I just as fact, easily say, Horace, Trump reversing this stuff is beyond the bounds? No, all he's doing is returning it back to the status quo ante. And the status quo ante was the people of America were being poisoned. So there are still laws on the books that cover these areas, and people can still be prosecuted, and people can Not even litigate. Not by this administration. Not by What's this administration. I mean, Scott Pruitt paid 30000 bucks for a phone booth so that he could have you know, conversa illegal private conversations with his lobbyist buddies. The, 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 you know, the, talk about the swamp. I still, you know, I still don't get... Are you, are you in favor of or opposed to coal companies being able to dump their waste into rivers? I'm opposed to the federal government manipulating whatever the laws are with regard to poisoning without actually having an action of Congress. I am opposed to that. The large Congress the passed the environment. Congress created the Environmental Protection Agency. They passed that law. They said, okay, you know, here are our goals. Protect the American people. You guys define the rules that do it. The EPA said, okay, here's yeah, one of the rules. You can't dump coal waste into rivers. And then Trump comes right. along with an executive order and says, sure, they can dump all the coal waste they want into rivers. I, I no, don't understand how in no, any didn't. moral universe you can defend that. He did not say that. What he actually said was the very rule that the Barack Obama administration put into effect is repealed. There's been no affirmative protection, no affirmative grant because the president. They're dumping coal into the authority. rivers right now, Chorus. They started the day after Trump did this. 
It's saving them a fortune. They're no longer having to dispose of their coal waste. They're, they're just dumping it in our rivers and poisoning people downstream who probably don't even realize that there's arsenic and mercury and uranium and all kinds of god-awful stuff in that coal waste. It's well, now in their, in, their, in their tap water. It's happening in 1994, 1995, 1996, uh, 1978, 1979. I get confused about why the president that simply says you overreached by abusing... You know, in 1978, we did state. not even know, Horace, that low levels okay, of arsenic in water caused cancer. We didn't even know that. We, we didn't even we learn did that until the 90s. We did in 1999. We did in 2000. So George Bush should have uh, should no, have been president until 2001. Oh, you're trying to blame this all on Bill Clinton? I'm not blaming this on anyone. Republican what I am pointing out legislature is that was, that was spending all the time trying is, to impeach the president. What I'm pointing out is that President Obama, instead of pushing through another new law clarifying what these rules are, chose to just issue an executive order. Like he could have gotten Mitch McConnell to go along with that law, just like he got Mitch McConnell to go along with Merrick Garland. No, he could have done that in two, he could have done that in 2009. He could have done that all the way through 2010. And a supermajority. He, he, he could have done it for the 74 days that he had a majority, but you, you have priorities. Horace Cooper, hang on just a second, Horace. Um, this is the Tom Hartman Program. You can tweet Horace at National Center. NationalCenter.org is the website. Horace Cooper, the attorney. Horace, thank you for being with us. Hey, thanks so much for having me on. Good talking with you. We'll be back. Hey, do you brush with an electric toothbrush, or have you wanted to? If you're using one of the one of the older, bigger, bulkier, you know, and some of them you know, are so aggressive they can even damage your mouth, uh, tooth, electric toothbrushes, uh, or if you've never... Th- used an electric toothbrush, I want you to pay attention. There's a new electric toothbrush. Time Magazine called it the invention of the year, right? Uh, It's called Quip, Q-U-I-P. It's slim, it's lightweight, it's about the size of a regular toothbrush. It's got a a little AAA battery inside that powers it and powers it for months at a time uh, between changes. And it, it does a really great job. It aggressively cleans your teeth, but it does so in a way that's good for your gums and good for your teeth. It's a, the perfect two-minute clean. So check this thing out. And it's great for traveling. It comes with a little tube that you can drop it in to travel because, like I said, it's about the size of a regular toothbrush, much, much smaller than your, than your big electric toothbrushes. And you can find out all about it at getquip.com slash Tom. That's G-E-T, getquip, Q-U-I-P, dot com slash T-H-O-M. Getquip.com slash Tom for more information. It's only 25 bucks, and they send you the refills, the, the brush heads that you're supposed to replace every three months. Every three months, they'll send those to you for only $5 free shipping. It's an amazing deal. Getquip.com slash Tom. Welcome back. Tom Hartman here with you. Mike in Los Angeles, listening on KPFK. Hey, hey Mike, what's up? Hey, Tom. You know, as you know, uh, George W. Bush can't travel. Uh, he's sentenced to a, a lifetime in Texas because if he goes overseas, he's subject to being prosecuted for war crimes. I'm just Same with Dick Cheney. Whether... Big pardon? Same with Dick Cheney. Right. I'm just wondering whether anyone's considered the possibility that uh, our kidnapper-in-chief, having kidnapped 3,000 children to terrorize them and their parents, might be subject to some sort of international law action when he's over in Europe and might end up actually being in the Hague. I think it's extremely unlikely that any of our European allies would go after a sitting president of the United States. Um, well, remember what the king of the Netherlands put out there on his Yeah, I, I learned later that that actually wasn't the king of the Netherlands. It was one of those, uh, you know, spoof tweet sites. The king of the uh, Netherlands does not get political. So I, you know, and I said that on the air and I was wrong. And the next day I was going to correct myself. And I, I don't remember if I did or not. I may well have forgotten. So... Well, if they do book him, I'd be willing to help pay for the for the uh, cell use. Yeah, there you go. A lot of us would chip into that. We could crowdsource that real fast. Thanks a lot for the call. Audrey in Illinois. Hey, Audrey, what's up? Hey, Tom. Uh, it's good to, to talk to you. Long talk. Uh, long, long time no talk. Um, mm-hmm. uh, but my, my issue is regarding the so-called pro-life uh, movement. Um, I think it's high time we identified it as pro-breeding movement. These people are not pro-life. Um, you don't, you cannot say to someone, uh, you got to have that baby, but we don't have to make sure you have the, ed- the resources to 
take care of its health care or your own. Yeah. Um, you got to have that baby, but we don't have to have the resources to properly educate your child or you, for that matter, to make sure you're you're knowledgeable uh, regarding c- your civic duties and uh, job skills and job training. Uh, you got to have that baby, but we don't even have to make sure that you are protected as a worker so that you have enough income to properly provide uh, for that child. Um, I think what these people are doing is ensuring that we give birth to children uh, in very desperate circumstances uh, so as to create and maintain uh, a, a consistent sources of, of cheap human labor. A permanent underclass. I think yeah. that, that may be, Audrey. The, the other thing that uh, gets completely lost in the history of all this and, and, and largely forgotten, although being an old fart, I have uh, you know, the benefit of having been alive in the 60s. Um, you know, and prior to the 1965 Connecticut versus Kavanaugh, I think it was, or Cunningham or whatever it was, that there was a 1965 decision that ruled that it was legal uh, for a married couple to have birth control in their home. Prior to that, Connecticut banned that. You couldn't have a condom. Uh, the birth control pill had just been brought to market four years earlier. You couldn't have birth control pills, things like that, even right. if you were married yep. in Connecticut. And it wasn't just Connecticut. Yep. And the Supreme Court struck that down. And at the time the Supreme Court struck that down, and I remember this very vividly, um, I, I was, this was around the time of my real political awakening. I was you know, 14, 15 years old. And the argument that, and, and w- that was being made by the, the, what we called then the Joe Pine conservatives, the, you know, he was a famous right-wing talk show host on TV, uh, was that uh, states, particularly states like Connecticut, needed to ban contraception because they were majority white states and white people were not reproducing at the rate that people of color were in this country and you were going to see a racial genocide of white people. And that's the kind of language that was being used by the Pat Buchanans of that day. And, uh, you know, that whole, that whole piece of the equation, it's, it's almost like people forget that ever happened. Oh, I don't doubt it. But here's the thing. Remember, race, the, the rhetoric of racism is often used, you know, to the means of, once again, like you say, creating a permanent underclass. Yeah. They, they want these people to see the country pass their money, okay? Uh, what they want is a human labor. As long as we're poorly educated and poor, um, we're always going to be desperately dependent on them. That's how they perceive things. Now, let's face facts. I mean, you're, you're saying you're talking about history that, you know, that he's using the bigoted argument, you know, this is to get white people on board. Right. right? Uh, you know, hey, you got to preserve our race. Right. Uh, but what was the argument for breeding African-American, forcing African-American women to breed their children into slavery in perpetuity? Right. It was to create a cheap workforce. That's it was economic. They're, right. Exactly. Yeah. These people, you know, they have to use that that pining away at uh, you know, the white, the white person is going to disappear argument because they know good and full well that the crap that they used against us African-American women would not work uh, in front of white people. You're not going to get that. Uh, not, you know, they're not going to get away. With well, what that. about the argument, I mean, this new argument that they've got, which is that, you know, uh, abortion is being promoted in the black community as a way of committing genocide against the black community? Yeah, there. What, what it is is it's all a bunch of straw man arguments. Yep. Um, you know, just to you know, they're, they're surreptitiously trying to create, you know, maintain. Uh, what, what is it? The vice president under uh, FDR said, uh, the, "Keep the working people in eternal subjection." Yes. I mean, these are the reasons why we have to have child labor laws. Mm-hmm. I mean, and they were so willing. To, they were so ardently against the protection of the children of the working people of this country, especially the working poor, yeah. that they were willing to kill people for it. I mean, is, am I saying the child... Yeah, your, your phone is breaking up, Audrey. But... The Ludlow Massacre, so... Oh yeah, the Ludlow massacre in in, in Colorado. You had you know, yeah, yeah, and and then you had you know the 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 Haymarket riots, uh, so called. Uh, you had the 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 Pinkertons were were you know going around busting unions, killing people. Uh, you know the 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 Pullman Porter strike. I mean, there's you know the history is littered with this stuff. The Great Flint sit down strike. You know, um, yes, all of those things. Uh, although we've, I think we've wandered a bit afield from the, from the topic. But, Audrey, thank you for the call. Very, very well said. Uh, we'll be back. It is 28 minutes, roughly, past the hour. Stick around. We'll be back with more of Anything Goes Friday here on the Tom Hartman Program.
You're listening to the Tom Hartman Program. Call 202-808-9925. Speaking the truth, the multinational corporations and their shills would really rather you didn't know. Tom Hartman, you're with you. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Welcome back. Tom Hartman here with you. This is an amazing story. It's from the Associated Press. Uh, somebody tweeted it to me, actually, and I'm sorry I don't have it right up in front of me, so I can't acknowledge the person, but um, it's, uh, you can find it on my Twitter uh, feed, you know. Uh, but it's, you can also find it on the Associated Press. It's by uh, Ellen Nickmeyer, and the headline is EPA Rollbacks Already Touching Americans' Lives. You'll recall you know, one hour ago, right now, I was debating this with Horace Cooper from, uh, you know, the, the uh, conservative lawyer from the conservative think tank. And what they're talking about is these uh, 37 mostly women farm workers in California Central Valley who were out uh, picking uh, f- food in, in an orchard. Uh, or, excuse me, they were picking cabbage. In fact, uh, let me just read you a, a paragraph of this. Picking cabbage that morning, the workers noticed a tarry smell. Actually, let me back it up. This is the very beginning. For 37 mostly female farm workers in California's Central, Central Valley, U.S. policy under EPA Chief Scott Pruitt became personal not long after sunup one day in May of 2017. Picking cabbage that morning, the workers noticed a tarry smell drifting from a nearby orchard. Mouths and lips tingled or went numb. Throats went dry. Soon some of the workers were vomiting and some were collapsing. Officials in California's farm-rich Kern country, where the workers fell ill, said that this was because a pesticide, chlorpyrifos, if I may well be mispronouncing that, and if you know how to pronounce it, call in and, and you know, tell Shira or tell me how to do it, but I think it's chlorpyrifos, uh, was being sprayed on a nearby orchard. And then they point out five weeks before, in one of his first acts at the EPA, Pruitt reversed an Obama-era initiative to ban all food crop uses of that particular pesticide, chlorpyrifos, which damages the brain and nervous system of fetuses and young children and has been prohibited because of that as a household bug killer since 2001. That's George W. Bush's EPA. So here Scott Pruitt says, oh, no problem. You can go back to using this insanely toxic pesticide that we know causes birth defects. And presumably, you know, I mean, one of the things we know is typically any compound that'll produce a birth defect can also produce cancer because the mechanism is almost the same. It's disruption of DNA. But that's just fine because the industry are good friends of ours and their lobbyist is my good buddy and they give me a lot of money and, uh, you know, who gives a damn about farm workers or the American people for that matter since it's being sprayed on our food. So the stuff that's causing the farm workers to fall over and, and, and pass out and, and puke and, you know, just from getting a whiff of it is now in your food, thanks to Scott Pruitt and Donald Trump. And, and, and you get these conservative, oh, these bleeding heart liberals, they're, oh, it's, you know, they're so concerned about the environment. Come on. You've got, you know, one in 80 kids now having autism. You've got childhood cancer rates. I, you know, when I grew up in the 50s and 60s, I never knew a single kid with cancer. And now there's not a classroom in America where, you can't, where, where kids don't know somebody who has cancer. I, you know, birth defects. I, I knew one kid all the time I was in, in school who had a birth defect. You know, now they're, they're exploding. I mean, we're just seeing these explosions of this stuff. And it's not just you know, some weird coincidence. It's not, it didn't fall out of the sky. It's we're being poisoned. And we're being poisoned for profit. And the swamp creatures in Trump's administration and in the Environmental Protection Agency are making it easier for these people to poison us and thus increase their profits so that they can make larger donations to Republican politicians. It just is that simple. And it is just that wrong. Anyhow, it's Anything Goes Friday. Jeremiah in Virginia. What's on your mind, Jeremiah? Uh, hi, Tom. Uh, I was going to call because I'd like to give some insight to uh, maybe some of your listeners uh, uh, by talking about what it is I do for a living. And uh, actually, I would like to issue a challenge to 
every member of Congress, uh, specifically Republicans, uh, to come and work in my business for about a week at the end of each month. Um, what I do is I own a small chain of pot shops. Pot? Uh, P-O-T? What's that? Did you say pot shops? P-O-T shops? Pot shops? Pawn shops. Oh, pawn. P-A-W-N. Okay. Got it. Yes, yes, pawn shops. And, and as you know, uh, they come with the typical stereotypes. Uh, uh, you've got these pawn brokers uh, uh, buying uh, from drug addicts and thieves when the reality couldn't be further from the truth because we're such a heavily uh, regulated business uh, right. where police reports go in daily. Uh, less than 1% of uh, items that come to a pawn shop are stolen. Uh, but, but the point of all this is, is that... Um, I would like for them to see who is really pawning with us. Yeah, I'm guessing uh, you're on the front lines of, of uh, the disaster that is Reaganomics. Yes, it, it, it absolutely is. I mean, you've got your, your typical 25% who are retired or uh, fixed-income individuals, handicapped people that at the end of month run short. Uh, you've got your 10% that are just looking to sell you know, stuff that they no longer need. Uh, and 25% probably are the working, what you call the working force. Mm -hmm. But over the last 10 years, I've seen a huge increase. About 40% 40, 40 of my uh, customers now are middle class and upper middle class. I'm talking doctors, lawyers, teachers, police officers, having to pawn with us because they're running short every month on funds. Wow. Uh, so when they're telling us, you know, all oh, the economy's looking so much better, not from my perspective, it's not. Yeah, the economy is looking so much better for rich people. That's the bottom line. Right. If you're in the top 10%, the economy is doing better. If you're in the top 1%, the economy is doing spectacular. But if you're in the bottom 90%, you're screwed. Right. And I mean, you're talking people that are making $100,000 a year that no longer can survive on $100,000 a year. Yeah. Uh, and having to pawn at the end of the month because they've sent their three kids to college and they run short. Yep. Uh, yep. Uh, things of that nature. And I'd like for Congress to come in and look my customers in the eye and say, hey, this is a wonderful economy. You're doing great. <laughs> yeah. That is a, a brilliant, brilliant story and a brilliant articulation of the problem that we are facing uh, as a consequence of Reaganomics, which has uh, ironically produced a class of voters that are falling for uh, Republican rhetoric about how, you know, if we just deregulate industries and allow more people to be poisoned, it'll increase the profits of these companies, and that'll trickle down to your paycheck, which, of course, we all know is BS. It's a new form of trickle-down economics, but, you know, it's, it's like they're, they're pitching it anyway. Jeremiah, thank you for the call, and thanks for sharing your story with us. I appreciate it. It's great to hear from you. Sherry in Denver, Colorado. Hey, Sherry, what's on your mind? Hi, Tom. Um, I wanted to call about the rally. And someone who spoke. You're talking about last night in Saturday. Montana, Trump's rally? No, in uh, Denver Saturday. Oh, he was in Denver Afternoon. on Saturday? Yeah. Okay, I missed that. Go ahead. Oh, that's all right. Um, the thing, uh, the person, they had different speakers, and one of the speakers talked about uh, how she's trying to get her husband citizenship in the United States and how much money it costs and the time involved, and I knew that, and I think a lot of people in the audience did. But the person who really made the audience quiet was a woman whose parents came from Vietnam. And she started out saying that it hadn't been for President Ford, and everybody really got quiet, uh, gave them um, the Vietnamese, the Laotians, and the uh, Cambodians a promise that they could come into the country because of all the things they did to help the Americans when they were there. Right. And that anyone after 1995 could come could become an American citizen. Mm -hmm. Okay, everybody, you know. Okay, so they went on, and, he, and she said, uh, "Trump has changed that. He has decided that all these people, and they're starting. ICE is starting to collect them. And she mentions the state, and she said Colorado is one of them. Texas, I don't remember the others." Uh, that they're getting them together because they're going to deport them. They're and this was at a Trump country. rally? Yep, 
I mean, no, this was the rally for the, um, no, Trump rally? You're kidding. Uh, this was the rally to help, uh, you know, the uh, women and the children. And oh, the on family. It was a, a rally of people who are in favor of family reunification or ending right. Trump's Correct. evil policies. Okay, I, I completely misunderstood, Sherry, and I was, I was baffled by I your story. <laughs> okay, it makes sense now. <laughs> I think in a Trump rally, oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Liberally, huh? Well, I thought maybe, you know, somebody <laughs> slipped through. I, you know, you just never know. No. Although I think at a Trump rally, no. pretty much the only people who speak are Trump, right? <laughs> it's, right. And that's true. But, you know, it's funny. Okay. And that everybody got really, really, I mean, it was like dead silence. Mm. Yeah. Everybody was shocked. And I mean, I had heard, and they've got a, um, they're suing the government. I don't know how well that will work. It, mm. You know, it sounded really sad. But the thing that even bothered me more, Tom, was that, I later went home. The rally was wonderful. I went home. Yeah, real quick, Sherry. Went to see the, okay, went to see the news, and no one had it on. Oh, jeez. See, that's and the problem. I, I mean, you know, it's it's if the media doesn't think that they can jack up advertising rates and get new viewers, they don't they don't play things. And well, Sherry, thank you for the call. That that that's so sad. I wonder if it was a Sinclair station. This is the Tom Hartman program. Back with more of your calls on Anything Goes Friday here on the Tom Hartman Program right after this. You know, in the world of work, one of the most important things is one of the things that people probably think the least about until they have to sit in it, which is their chair. And the X chair is absolutely extraordinary. This is the new high tech. In fact, they've got a brand new version. It's called the X3, the newest version of the X chair. It is comfortable. It is high tech. And yes, I'll say it. It is sexy. This chair is extraordinary and it will dramatically, consequentially improve your concentration and productivity because it's going to help your posture. And, you know, if you're not in pain and and your blood is working, you know, flowing well, your brain is going to work well. The new X3 is quite simply the most modern, ergonomic, high-tech, comfortable office chair in the world, period. The X3's unique ATR fabric makes it feel like you're literally floating on air. And its patented split-back lumbar technology provides a cradling, customized feel that has to be experienced to believe. You need to see and feel the X3 for yourself. Go to xchairtom.com. That's xchairtom.com now to check out the X3's perfect blend of design and ergonomics. A lot of people, you know, checking these out and going for these chairs. Supplies are limited, so don't wait. Order at xchairtom.com. And if you do it now, you get $100 off. That's xchairtom.com. Or you can call them at 1-844-4X-CHAIR. This chair comes with a 30-day, no-questions-asked guarantee of complete satisfaction. That's how good it is. Go to xchairtom.com. Right now, use the code TOM, T-H-O-M, to get a free footrest. XChairTom.com. Now back to the podcast. Welcome back. Tom Harmon here with you. It's Anything Goes Friday, taking uh, your calls. And David in Buffalo, New York. Hey, David, what's on your mind? Uh, Thanks, Tom. Thank you. Uh, Tom Tariff. Uh If you were to... uh, Tariff. Yes. If you were to create create our country uh, with tariffs, in the past, in the present and in the future, what would tariffs look like? Why? And could you put a number to it or would you put a number with it? Sure. The, uh, first of all, I refer you to the introduction and the first chapter of my book, Rebooting the American Dream, which you can read for free online over at the truthout.org website. And uh, click on Tom Hartman on Truthout on their homepage, and then you'll see the picture of the book, and you just click on the cover of the book, and you'll the entire book is there to be read for free online. Um, I don't have it in front of me, so I don't have specific numbers that I can share with you. They are all in that book. But when America started, George Washington, um, uh, in fact, actually, just bef- just bef- well, it was, you know, we were operating under the Articles of Confederation. We weren't what we call modern America. The Constitution was adopted in 1789, but the Revolutionary War had been over, you know, I think five years earlier than that. And we'd been operating under these Articles of Confederation, which made all 13 states basically independent countries with a free trade agreement among them. It wasn't working, so we rebooted to the Constitution. 17, it was proposed in 1787. It was ratified in 1789. And, 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 and when that was ratified, 
uh, George Washington was elected president. He was not in the room. He didn't know he'd been elected president. And so he's standing out in his field in, in Mount Vernon, literally outstanding in his field. And uh, his old friend, uh, General Henry Knox from the Revolutionary War, rides up on horseback and says, George, you've been elected president. And uh, I'm here to take you to New York, which was then the seat of government. Uh, you know, it's where, where George Washington started uh, presiding from. Uh, the White House wasn't built until the John Adams administration. He says, I'm here to take you to uh, New York and or do whatever you want. And George said, well, or President Washington said, uh, there's two things I'd like you to do, Henry, or uh, one thing I want you to do, one thing I have to do. He said, what I have to do is I have to visit my mother who is uh, ailing. And in fact, she died uh, about a year later. He never saw her again. He saw her that one time on his way to New York. Uh, but he, he said, I had to visit my mother. He said, what I'd like you to do, Henry, is go up to Connecticut. And uh, there's a guy there whose name is Daniel Hinsdale, and he's a tailor. And he has been, he was, he was violating the British embargo and bootlegging, making fine American clothing. It was illegal in the United States to manufacture high quality clothing all the time the British, you know, controlled our colony, just like they did not allow the Indians to do that in India. Uh, thus, the spinning wheel was the logo for, for Gandhi, a form of resistance to that policy. All fine clothing that was worn in America had to be manufactured in the mills of, of Great Britain. And uh, so uh, Hinsdale had been breaking that embargo, and after the Revolutionary War, he openly opened what was America's first fine men's clothing store. And, uh, and he was making fine men's clothing. And he was basically the only guy doing it. It wasn't that big a market at that point in time. I mean, it was a brand new market. And so George said, you know, take my measurements and take it to, to, to Mr. Hinsdale, Daniel Hinsdale, and uh, he'll make a suit for me to be sworn in with. And Knox did that and brought the suit to New York, and, and George Washington was sworn in, raised his hand, put it on the Bible a whole bit, wearing a brown American-made suit. Hinsdale did not have a black one um, at the time in stock that he, could, that he could provide to Washington on short notice. So then he wore British black for the famous painting that Dolly Madison rescued from the White House and you know, hangs in the White House now. So Washington understood that if we were to become a great country, we had to make things. We had to manufacture things. So he went to his Secretary of the Treasury, Alexander Hamilton, in 1789, uh, when he became president, and said, would you come up with a way to build American manufacturing? And Hamilton worked on this for two years. And in 1791, he, he wrote what was called Alexander Hamilton, Secretary of, of the Treasury, Alexander Hamilton's Report to Congress on American Manufacturers. And it was a, an 11-point plan to build manufacturing in the United States. And it included things like subsidized new and emerging industries, actual government subsidies, um, you know, strengthened patent and trademark protections, you know, have Congress pass those laws that the Constitution authorized so that you know, inventions and useful arts and sciences are, are enhanced. Um, but the biggest part of it, the main component of it, was tariffs. And the idea of the tariffs was anything that we would appropriately want to import from overseas because we have no interest in manufacturing it in the United States. You don't bother with a tariff. You know, there's going to be a small market in the United States for perfume made out of sandalwood. Well, you know, you can't grow sandalwood in the United States. So we're not going to put a tariff on sandalwood imported from Thailand that's used to make perfume. But on the other hand, if Thailand wants to try and sell clothing in the United States, which we want to be making here, we're going to put a tariff on it. And um, so that's what they did. And they established this whole spectrum of tariffs. There are now over 22,000 tariff categories. You can read them at, commer at uh, commerce.gov. Uh, you know, I believe it's commerce.gov, the website of the U.S. Co Commerce Department. They're still there. Typical tariffs now are less than 1%. In fact, I think our total average overall tariffs are less than 2%. But, you know, typically these tariffs are very, very low, but, but they're, you know, rolled steel, sheet steel, flat steel, you know, pig iron, you know, I mean, every, all kinds of stuff, you know, it's all got these tariff categories. And uh, Hamilton said, do this and raise these average tariffs up to around 20 to 30 percent, which George Washington did. And they stood that way until the 1980s. And the entire, right now, tariffs are taxes, right? And in fact, Stephen Moore you know, the Wall Street Journal guy who used to come on this show and debate me is trying to get conservatives to start using the language of taxation when referring to tariffs because he's opposed to tariffs because he's in favor of, you know, the big businesses and the rich people who get that way because of the big businesses doesn't give a rat's ass about American workers. But um, one 
100% of the income of the United States federal government, George Washington's salary, John Adams' salary, Thomas Jefferson's salary, James Monroe's salary, you know, all the way through to the Civil War, all the way up to Abe Lincoln's salary, 100% of the income to the federal government through that entire period, right up to the Civil War, was from tariffs. It was taxes we imposed on the import of foreign goods. And what that did was it encouraged American steel manufacturer. It encouraged Americans to develop companies like, you know, well, a little later on, you know, later in the 1800s, you know, uh, Thomas Edison and his phonograph and Alexander Graham Bell and his telephone and all this stuff, you know, Union, uh, Western Union putting wires all across America. And it was all American-made copper wire and American-made insulation on the copper wire and American-made cars and Henry Ford's factory. Everything was made in America. And this was, you know, this is how we got where we are from the Civil War until World War II, about two-thirds of the total revenue of the federal government was from tariffs. Excuse me, World War I. About two-thirds of the revenue from the, from the federal government was from tariffs. And from the end of World War I through the 1980s, about a third of federal revenues. Now, it declined uh, during the 70s, uh, you know, because it didn't all start under Reagan. Carter was dialing back tariffs. Nixon had been dialing back tariffs. This began with Nixon's outreach to China. But as, as tariff income went down, Tariffs went down, and as the tariffs went down, what happened was we started getting flooded with cheap goods made overseas. And I remember as a kid in the 50s and 60s, uh, you know, if you saw something that said made in Japan, you thought, okay, it's cheap junk, you know, or I'm not going to buy that. It's, I'd rather buy an American-made product. I remember in the 70s, I was living in Michigan. Louise and I lived in Michigan. We grew up in Michigan. And uh, if you had a, a Toyota or a Hyundai or something like a Hyundai or a, uh, uh, you know, any of the, actually Hyundai was not even making cars at that point in time, but if you had a Toyota, it was the big bugaboo, um, you know, the big, the big scary, uh, um, geez, I wonder if bugaboo has a racist origin, I'll bet it does. Um, anyhow, another <laughs> word to excise from my vocabulary. Um, but the, you know, if you had a car, a foreign made car, or even a, even a BMW, but the Japanese cars in, tr in particular were seen as dumping into our market, your car would get keyed. People would vandalize your car in the parking lot in, in Michigan. Uh, we, Louise and I lived in Lansing and in Detroit. And, um, you know, that kind of faded out with Reagan and, and, the, and the collapse of tariffs. And then, you know, the collapse of tariffs went into full gear in the 90s. Uh, with uh, Clinton joining NAFTA or negotiating NAFTA and joining the General Agreement on Tariffs and Trades, which became the WTO. So, in my opinion, we should return to Alexander Hamilton's position. And it should be done in the kind of systematic, thoughtful way that Alexander Hamilton did it. And he laid this out, and as I said, you can read his words in my book. It's pretty hard to find online, actually. You can find articles about it, but just to actually read Hamilton's words. I reprinted them in the book, uh, the Rebooting the American Dream. Um, and like I said, you can read it for free over at truthout.org. Uh, you don't have to buy the book. You can also get it in a library. But um, that was a systemic and organized uh, way of doing things. And what Trump is doing, you know, he, he and Lighthizer, in my opinion, and the opinion of Sherrod Brown and the opinion of a lot of good progressives, and in fact, actually, the, pretty much the entire progressive caucus, is that the, his impulse is correct. We need to protect American manufacturing and we need to bring back American manufacturing in defiance of these big companies. It is these big companies that have shipped our jobs overseas who are the ones who are unpatriotic. And, of course, you know, the presidents and congresses that have gone along with it. But it is not the Chinese companies that are evil. It's not China that's, that's evil. They're simply taking advantage of our stupid changes in our policies. And then they adopted our policies, by the way, with their own tariff system. China has aggressive tariff systems. And, and things that are the equivalent of tariffs, which Alexander Hamilton also talked about. Non-tariff barriers to trade, like, you know, uh, domestic uh, content uh, components and things. So the problem with the way that Trump is doing it is he's, he's blundering around like a bull in a china shop when, you know, what we should be doing is a systematic, here it is, you know, step by step, these are the industries we're going to protect. And we should also be doing something that we did that, that Bill Clinton included in the NAFTA negotiations. They knew when they negotiated NAFTA that it was going to cost at least a million American jobs. They knew this. They said it out loud. And in fact, in the bill that was passed that authorized the United States to, to do NAFTA, we created a, a, an agency in the government and set aside billions of dollars to retrain over a million American workers who would lose their jobs as a result of NAFTA. 
Now, tragically, and, and over a million Americans actually got retrained, in quotes. The tragedy, though, is that that retraining program was largely a joke. The whole thing was largely a joke. It just, you know, it wasn't what we thought it would be. Um, and, you know, and, and, it, and it was a joke because these for-profit companies stepped into the breach and they were just offering these crappy courses on, you know, you know, here's how you do bookkeeping. Now you can get a job. Well, no, you can't get a job. The jobs are gone. So that's my riff on tariffs. I think we need to go back to a, to, and every country should protect their own domestic industries, as should we. Welcome back, Tom Hartman here with you and uh, Gary in Rainier, Washington. Hey, Gary, what's on your mind? Hey, Tom. Listening for a long time. Haven't called you for a while. But what I've called about is your uh, criticism of MSNBC. I just, I, I watch them a lot. I'm up about 4.30 every morning, mm -hmm. and I watch some at prime time. And I just think they're really doing their part to protect uh, our media and I know it's never enough, and there's things they don't cover, but I really think they give out good information. And CNN, and I think the people that have the shows, really do ask some really tough questions. And I just... Broadly I, speaking, I don't disagree. Uh, you know, and, and I love Rachel Maddow's show in the evening, uh, which is the, the, the one show on MSNBC that Louise and I go out of our way to watch you know, as frequently as we can. Um, the other shows tend to be, you know, recycling the same five stories from show to show to show with just different commentary and different, different commentators. And I think this whole idea of the news reporter reports a story and then they have a 15-minute conversation with a panel uh, is getting very old and very tired. Uh, but my point is that uh, when Andy Lack came in and uh, said we're going to move MSNBC to the center, and we're going to get more Republicans on MSNBC. We're going to change the face of MSNBC. It was like two, three years ago. Uh, when that happened, and they started hiring Republicans, and, and of course, they, you know, Joe Scarborough had been on much longer than that, but you know, raising his profile, uh, putting, um, uh, oh, what's her name, who, who uh, was the uh, help? Mika. Mika, yeah. No, not Mika. I'm talking about uh, the woman who was in the Bush campaign in the, in the White oh, House. Yeah. Um, no, I won't. Well, I'm brain farting on her name. I'm so sorry. I can see her face. Um, yeah. uh, but, you know, these high profile Republicans and they start having Bill Crystal con constantly who's I mean, Bill Crystal wants to end Social Security and Medicare. And, yeah. you know, they just never have these kind of conversations that are going to make these people feel uncomfortable. Hugh Hewitt, right wing talk show host on, on a, a very toxic right wing network that's owned by a Bible publishing company. Um, I mean, these people are coming. Uh, these these Republican commentators at the moment are trashing Trump. And, you know, I get that. And, and we're all saying, yay, yay, Nicole Wallace was her name. Yay, yay, Nicole yeah. Wallace, you're trashing Trump. You're, you know, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. But what's going to happen to MSNBC's now mostly Republican lineup during the day? And you know, I'm not sure Stephanie Rule, uh, you know, if she's a Democrat or Republican, but, you know, she's certainly, if she's a Democrat, she's, you know, a corporate Democrat. If she's a Republican, she's an Eisenhower Republican. Maybe she's just kind of a, a, a reporter. I, I have a, you know, I like her, I respect her, but her position on the, quote, far left makes me crazy because there is no far left functionally in this country. That. The Communist Party's dead. But here's the question. When Trump is gone and there's a Democrat in the White House, MSNBC is going to still have half their, half their day Republicans. What are they going to do? I agree with you, but, you know, there is so much happening, and they are reporting, and CNN is doing a hell of a job, along with the Times. Yes, I agree, the and the Washington Post. Post, and the Washington Post, all of them. Um, but that's, that's my concern, Gary, is that, it, you know, MSNBC, we have to acknowledge, you know, they've got some great programming, they've got some good commentators, and that said, they're owned by Comcast, which is a very, very right-wing corporation, multiple lawsuits against the FCC to stop net neutrality, an issue that's very rarely discussed on MSNBC outside yeah. of Stephanie Rule and Ali Velshi. And and uh, and even they kind of keep it in some narrow boundaries. And, uh, you know, we just have to acknowledge this is this is corporate media. There are there are alternatives to that. Um, but, yeah, I, I get what you're saying. And I'm I, you know, I'm not going to you know go totally nuts on this. Gary, thanks for the call. Uh, Maine in Chicago. Hey, Maine, what's on your mind? Yeah. Uh, uh, how you doing? Good. I, what I wanted to uh, say was uh, I agree with you, uh, you know, as far as the free education and, and health care. And all that. And, you know, we have 70 percent of the people uh, in, in whatever party uh, you go, the Democrat, Republican or independent, who want these things. So if we can, we need uh, candidates who will grab onto these issues and, and, and will say these words, you know, free education, free health care, uh, pay student athletes. You have to democratize capitalism 
in such a way where this is as strong as they want to privatize. Like they, yep. that privatization is, is, is like us going at them with uh, free health care, free education. Yes. Protect the commons, you know, good jobs Correct. with unions and a $15 minimum wage. I absolutely, you know, you, you knock it out of the park, Mean as usual. Uh, it, it, and, and we need to be taking this to them. And this is, this is the uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's platform. I mean, this, this young woman took down uh, a, uh, a sitting Democratic congressman, uh, number four in the, in the House leadership, uh, mm. by simply saying, I'm here to talk about free health care, free education, and damn good jobs. And she right. won on that platform, and I think any Democrat will win on that platform, and I think they will beat any Republican. I'm with you, man. You said it very well. It's, it, this is what we need to be doing, and we need to be doing it over and over and over again. It's coming back. We as Democrats, we as progressives, need to be coming back to this position over and over and over again. Uh, Louise and I are off to uh, an NLP training in Orlando. You can find out about it at purenlp.com. I'll be on a couple days next week, and Jefferson Smith is going to be on a couple days. Have a great weekend, and I'll see you next week. And don't forget, get out there, get active, tag, you're it. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit tomhartman.com. Brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, weight gain. Maybe you think they're just part of getting older, but Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all connect to menopause. It's at the root of dozens of symptoms we experience, not just hot flashes. Midi clinicians are menopause experts offering safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com.